0: Welcome back to my dad's podcast, season two, My Blackest Challenge National. Follow him on Twitter and Instagram. Hope you enjoy the show.
1: Bye! Why, buildings are burning. This state would prefer preserving that white nationalism and that white supremacist mindset over arresting, charging, and helping to convict Four officers who killed the black man. That is the reality of what we're dealing with. This is not just a few cops doing things across the country. This is not a good cop versus bad cop situation. This is Ahmad Arbery being shot down by white men on the streets of Georgia, Breonna Taylor being killed in her home, This is in New York City where we were until freedom. We were just in New York fighting the police officers who in the name of social distancing were damn near killing black young people on our streets. This is a coordinated activity happening across this nation. And so we are in a state of emergency. Black people are dying in a state of emergency. We cannot look at this an isolated incident. The reason why buildings are burning are not just for our brother George Floyd. We're, they're burning down because people here in Minnesota Because Target should be on the streets with us calling for the justice that our people deserve. Where was AutoZone at the time when Philando Castile was shot in a car which is what they actually represent? Where were they? So if you are not coming to the people's defense, then don't challenge us when young people and other people who are frustrated and instigated by the people you pay, you are paying instigators to be among our people out there, throwing rocks, breaking windows, and burning down buildings. And so young people are responding to that. Look how I'm living now. Police be tripping now.
2: Hello everyone. You are listening to my Black is Transnational, and um, what a powerful intro! Tamika Mallory talking, and this just is a foreshadowing of what we're going to be covering on this final episode of season two of the podcast. Um, we'll be talking about the two pandemics that are killing Black people in this one world: the COVID-19 disease and the disease of racism that has been permeating all through the world, not just the United States and in light of what's been happening in the death that that shook the world in George Floyd dying uh Memorial Day. So, on this episode, I'm going to speak my truth. I'm going to talk about how the COVID nineteen experience and the the death of George Floyd and what's been following after that, the protests and everything, how those are all tied into a very important disparity that exists in the black community. We'll talk about why that matters and what we can do as black people, but also transnationals, how we can hold each other accountable and how we can utilize what we have our power, our unity, our resources in order to be able to further advance the ultimate goal that I have for us, which is to become a black institution, a formidable force. It's all right. But before we get into that, I got a special guest in the building. Dr. Wanda's in the house.
0: Hey, folks.
2: All right. So this isn't a pillow talk conversation per se, but she'll be here to chime in. Yeah. Ear hustling, playing the little (laughs) executive producer role. And she'll chime in when she has some thoughts she wants to share. It's primarily going to be me and you all, but she's also here because she's my support system. She's my rock. And when we're talking about something important behind every strong black man is...
0: Even stronger black woman.
2: There you go. All right. So... With that being said, let's get to our formalities. If this is your first time listening to My Blackest Transnational, you can find this podcast wherever you like to find good podcasts, whether it's Apple, Google, Spotify, you can definitely find it on the Anchor app, which is the flagship station, which I do publish this podcast on. All right, so please make sure to subscribe and also please make sure to rate and review the podcast. One of the things that I'm realizing is that we do not get enough ratings and I don't know if that's like a... Brush bruise to my ego or anything like that but i do think that in order for this podcast to be more visible your ratings your reviews do play a critical role so please do that as well um please provide some feedback if you really have some things you want to say for me you got some words you can contact me on these different platforms you can contact me on instagram the podcast is a black transnational podcast and you can also catch me the host on my page at black transnational underscore. You can email us at black transnational 17 at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook. Now you can find our Facebook page there at black transnational podcast. So there are different platforms that you can find us on in order to communicate. And if you just want to know entirely everything that you need to know about the podcast, the guests and all that, you can find that on our website at www.blacktransnational.wixsite.com slash podcast. Okay. So now that we've gotten that all the way, and out of the way, for the final time this season, let's get into the topics. So, you know, I've, I've thought about this many times of how I wanted to go about recording this episode. And one of the things, you know, different angles and, and different ways that I should pursue this. Should I be scientific? Should I be academic? Should I be a real ass Negro? Should I be an African about it? How should I go about really conveying my thoughts about everything that's been happening? And, you know, the truth of the matter is that I have to be who I truly am. I have to be raw during these times. And and I'm a thinker. I'm a cognitive person, a deep thinker. And in my thoughts and meditation about what's been going on, A lot of things start to connect. I'm hoping that I can be able to walk you through in this short period of time that we have. This last couple minutes, hour, whatever it is that we have. I want to be able to walk you through how things lead to where we are now. I won't go too much in depth, but I'll try my best to at least paint this picture for you. And then I'll share a little bit of my own personal experiences as to why this matters so much to me. And why... As black immigrants, we cannot use the idea of being transnational as a way to dodge what's happening in our world right now. There's a biological killer that is affecting us. The COVID-19 disease, also known as the coronavirus. The coronavirus, it started off in Wuhan, China, and it started to spread and become a pandemic. By the time we reached March of 2020, It was officially declared by the WHO, the World Health Organization, as a pandemic. And when it became a pandemic, the whole world went into an alarming state or state of emergency or state of alarm, whatever you want to call it. And as things started to progress and develop, when it came to the United States, one of the biggest things that we realized in this country was that the country found itself to be very ill-prepared, which led to a lot of people becoming infected. Black people then being affected and dying at a prodigious rate. It's important for me to put this in perspective why this is important. Because when it comes to the COVID-19 pandemic in the black community and people dying at a high rate, the truth of the matter is this whole thing could have been avoided. We have to understand that. This whole thing could have been avoided if the country was actually prepared. but We spent so much time trying to allocate our resources into building a wall that really changed the focus of everything.
0: I mean, I I just have to say something for that one. Yes, we could have been prepared if it wasn't for Trump's delaying. He delayed it for weeks after he knew about it. It was January when he was warned about it multiple times over and over and over. And I mean, you can just Google online all of the clips of him in denial and saying this would just disappear.
2: Absolutely. Thank you. And when we talk about that, that whole denial of it, that message then permeates because when you see the president who's calling it a flu.
0: Or a democratic conspiracy.
2: We go into the communities knowing that black people already have an innate embedded mistrust on the health system. So when I went into spaces that were primarily black, Lots of African-Americans, primarily African-Americans, tended to denounce or deny and reject the idea that they could be susceptible to the coronavirus. A lot of African-Americans would not believe that this could affect them. They even went far as saying that my melanin protects me, bro. Like, what am I going to do? I got to get this money. I got to go hustle. I'm black. It ain't going to affect me, right? It initially was perceived to be a white man's disease. And let's keep that in the back of our heads, that the coronavirus in a black community was perceived to be a white man's problem. OK, so then as we black people started to find ourselves still going out, doing our daily things and the news start reports start to come out, you realize that this disease is not like your typical past coronaviruses. This is something that's evolving that we do not know what it is. We don't have a vaccine for it people are getting affected by it at a high rate. Schools are shutting down. Workplaces are shutting down. But it doesn't matter for black people because primarily the majority of us tend to be essential employees, right? So we're still working in food places where some of them are still doing a lot of jobs that require them to be there. So they're still having that opportunity of being at risk for being exposed. And it's important to also keep in mind though, black people, in addition to also rejecting the, the fact that it's affecting them, which is a pure illustration of the miseducation and the misinformation that's in the black community when it comes to health, they start to also realize, and this is when white people started to do their testings and the vaccinations, testing was expensive. Initially, when the coronavirus was taking place in the United States, how much was it to take a test, Dr. Wanda? A
0: friend of mine was ordering the test, talked to the insurance company, it was about $1,200. $1,200. $1,200.
2: It costs $1,200 to get tested for coronavirus. Now, if we take a step back and we really observe and analyze our black communities, we understand African-Americans tend to be from low socioeconomic areas. Therefore, they have no resources of being able to do that. Black people are displaced in the position of not having enough resources or being in a very low quality environment that already puts them at a very high risk for various diseases already chronic diseases, particularly when it comes to obesity, when it comes to asthma, when it comes to cardiovascular ailments, hypertension, right? The fact that they are poor and there's not any resources around them already have them well-equipped to be affected by any disease, not to talk less of just a pandemic, and then you also add into the fact that in order to get tested, you have to pay twelve hundred dollars and also adding to the fact that wherever you work at or wherever you live at, your, your nearest clinic is already your community clinic. And we all know wherever you're from. Syracuse, can, you can be in Chicago, you can be in New York City, all those community clinics that are nearby in the hood or near those black communities, you already know that they are lacking resources. Period. So they're not going to be the first ones to have testing equipment and all that. Black people were already at a deficit, and they didn't even know it because they spent so much time denying it. And again, that's no—that's to no fault of the African American because they already have a history of being misled, misguided, abused by the medical system. To really get a deeper insight of that, I suggest you all read a book by Harriet Washington called *Medical Apartheid*. We really puts into perspective how black people have been used as lab rats for years in order to advance medicine that we know today, especially when it comes to women reproductive-like medicine. Yeah, that book really puts that in perspective. In addition to the Tuskegee syphilis study, which we all kind of know about historically, uh, that was a landmark study that really led to the development of human subject testing and things like that. But I digress. Only thing I'm saying is that, Black people do not trust the system and they have the right to not trust the system. So because of that, you weren't going to have that many people coming in and really seeking or being as as vigilant when it came to trusting the medical system or trusting clinics or trusting hospitals to properly take care of them. All right, so now what happens is that you have black people who are living in low socioeconomic um, areas. They have what we call poor social determinants of health because their environment is poor, their schools are poor, their hospitals are poor, their neighborhoods are poor, where they live at are typically where you have, so you have five a five-family household that's living in a two-bedroom apartment or even a one-bedroom apartment, right, or living in a project, so there's no room for social distancing and properly practicing all these public health recommendations, right, so then you have, you know, people who are already just because of what they have to live it on a daily basis, they have to make difficult choices. They have to make real difficult choices about what to do. Do I stay at home and try to allow myself to be healthy and, and, and go through an incubation period? Or do I go out, take the risk and continue to work my essential job? Because this is the only source of income that I have in order to take care of me and my kids because I'm a, I'm a single mother or a single father, right? And, and, and we do not have the resources in our, in our community to be able to help that. So we have to be able to go out there and expose ourselves. But we also don't have the information properly, nor do we believe the information to be completely accurate or apply to us. So that's when you mix all that together. This is why you see reports by the CDC. You see reports by the WHO that African-Americans in urban areas were three times more likely to die from the coronavirus. They were three times. For every 100,000 people, it was about 53.4 black people compared to 22.3 white people. This is what we in the public health profession call a health disparity. And when a health disparity exists, that really means that there are systematic things in place that do not allow... An underrepresented group such as black people to be able to achieve optimal health. That's it. That's the tweet. Like That's the problem. There's an inequity there. So then let me even go further more as far as like case in point as, as people will say. Now that we have those numbers that say 100,000 people, 53.4 people are dying that are black. And 22.3. White people start to see that. The nation starts to see that. And what do you think starts to happen? Because mind you, you all have experienced the fact that you all have been shut down. Your schools were closed. Your works were closed. You all were at home. You are in, what is that? What is that called? Shelter?
0: Shelter in place.
2: Shelter in place, right? So you are in shelter in place. You are home. And then you realize that once you see the disparity exist, people's reactions start to change. No longer is this considered a white man disease no longer is this a white man's problem it is now a black and brown people problem and if it's a black and brown people problem that means what it's time to open the country back up baby it's time it's time to run it back let's make america great again i mean that was just a scare but we got it testing we got that covered money we got the resources so It's time to run things back. We need to get our economy up and booming again. Like we cannot. America decided when coronavirus is over. And when I say America, I mean white people. White people really, we just saw, we just experienced the fact that white people literally said, yo, we think Corona is over. People are dying. But wait, wait, hold on. First of all, Florida, don't report those. Don't, don't, do not ever. Don't you ever, Florida, don't you ever run those numbers again. Keep those numbers quiet. Shh it's time for us to go back out there. We got to make America great again. And I think that's it. And the country starts to open back up. And you know what happens when the country opens back up? You start to see us transition from one pandemic to the next pandemic. And in the meantime, what's happening is you have all these African immigrants and black immigrants in the background that are also struggling but they're struggling in a completely different way. And I want to explain to you what the transnational experience was with the COVID-19 pandemic. African or black immigrants, according to the Migration Policy Institute, comprise probably about, about maybe 7% of the foreign born black population. And the majority of those immigrants work in, healthcare industry. So therefore I talked about black people just being overall essential workers, but black immigrants work a lot on the front lines because out of those numbers of black immigrants that are in the healthcare industry, the majority of them are nurses. So that means that you have these nurses that are pretty much on the front line. You have, um, you have people who are working as physicians or CNAs or, um, administrators that are black immigrants Meanwhile, while they're serving here in the United States, they also have these transnational ties to their native homeland, mean that they have to attend or um, they have to attend to the needs of their family members in the native country. So you have people because remember, this is a pandemic we're talking about, right? Let's not forget that this is a global issue. That America decided that the deal that was over. But everywhere else across the world is still happening. So you have black immigrants who are thinking about their family members back home. Because their family members in these developing nations are struggling. They have jobs that are shut down. Some of them may have family members that sell stuff on the street. That hustle from day to day. They don't live like paycheck to paycheck. But really like money that I get today for money that I need tomorrow. So... When you have no people out there, the whole country shut down, the whole state shut down. There aren't people out there, no cars out there that are, you know, opportunities for you to sell stuff. Nobody's coming to the market. There's no nobody coming to the office. People are struggling. And then they see their family members overseas like, oh, they're getting a stimulus check. (laughs) Like what your country is giving you $1,200 or if you have a family, you're getting 2400 run that. Like I need that. Let me hit you on WhatsApp and you know that I really need this more than you do because you are at least are living in this developed nation. You're doing well, not understanding that that person too may, may not be able to really have a job. That person may have to make some difficult choices, what they have to do with that money. They have so many family members calling them, asking them for that $1,200. If you're a single person, what do you do? What choices do you make? Then you have those same people who are working in the front lines who also still subscribe to a lot of cultural, a lot of cultural remedies that may not be true because of these WhatsApp messages that are being passed along on, on on group, group messaging, because there's still no vaccine out here for COVID-19. So you're subscribing to all types of treatments that put you in trouble. So then what's next? Right. So the African and black immigrant find themselves to be in a very shaky situation. And a lot of the times we still don't even know who's truly affected because a lot of times African immigrants tend to be grouped with all black people. But our cultures are different. Our practices are different. The things that cause us stress are completely different. But we're an underrepresented population within an already underserved community. And rightfully so, because black people overall need to be attended to in health research and health services. But then overall, finding out what's really happening in the black immigrant community and black refugee community becomes a very, very difficult task. right? And that's something that we're actually working on my team and I, as far as being able to continue to explore how the COVID-19 pandemic affects Black immigrants and Black refugees, because their challenges are different. And a lot of the initiatives that are put on right now by the government, by the CDC, are attending simply to Black African-American needs. And again, rightfully deserved. But I think that also just explains that there's a lot of Nuances, cultural nuances that have yet to be understood and recognized by the government and by health research, which is why people like myself have to kind of speak up about what's going on in black transnational communities and why we as transnationals need to be seen because what's occupying us and what's causing us stress and causing us health issues and creating stigmas for us is not necessarily the same for what's happening with black people overall and African-Americans in the United States. So. The COVID-19 affects both parties, but in completely different ways. And we can't even tell you how many African immigrants are dying from it because they don't know. <laughs> they don't know. The government hasn't looked to even truly, really, truly find out. If you go Google it, you can't really tell how many African immigrants are dying from the COVID-19. You, you can't tell that number. All right? Especially now as they're trying to, they're really trying to muffle this information. So again, the country's opening up, and this is what's happening to black people behind the scenes. Right? But then as the country opens up, we transition from one pandemic to another. Racism starts to really show it's true color. And baby, it's white. Right now, as you're listening to this podcast... We find ourselves at a crossroads as a nation. We find ourselves in the middle of protesting. I mean, you see what's going on right now outside of your, 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 your house, your communities. You see that people are, are protesting. You see things are burning. You see people are looting. You see that there's a lot of outrage. And I think a lot of us know why. Right? We don't need to be too redundant about why this is happening. A man was lynched on March or May 25th in broad daylight. A younger man was lynched almost three months ago in broad daylight. Not only was that happening, but that was recorded by the people who killed him. The video recording doesn't do anything. The power that videos have have no effect on whether this person lives or dies. Ultimately, all it does is documents it. That is the only thing that we can make from this. So, how am I feeling right now? How are you feeling right now? That's the that's the question that we immediately ask. And. As I'm watching this and we experience it, we have to put these things together. We have to understand what is linking one thing to the other. And the ultimate response is that it's inequality, right? These injustices, these inequities that are systematically in place allow for things to happen the way they have been happening for black people. It has allowed for black people to die not just physically in the hands of white people or white police officers or police officers that are non-black But it also allows for black people to die biologically, naturally, due to diseases because of a systematic health system in place meant to disservice or put people at a disparity that leads to negative health outcomes. right? But in regards to this racist act that occurred, we saw with our very eyes George Floyd killed and as a black man I looked and I and I mean it's I've seen others die I I really don't subscribe to watch these videos a lot I don't like to watch I like to preserve my soul because every time I see another black man die I feel it I, I can't see people die I barely like to see animals die for me to see death is it's very dark for me and to see it happen over and over again or see videos out there of, of men getting shot, of, of of men getting killed in front of their girlfriends and children and men getting killed in front of other people that look like them or, or for no reason is traumatizing to me. And after seeing George Floyd die in one of the most painful ways possible to the, to the eye of the beholder is by far one of the worst things that I've seen because we watched this man beg for his life. Beg, crawl for his mom, tell people that I'm dying, I- I get off of me, my body hurts, everything hurts, and nobody did anything, right? And these are narratives, these are rhetorics that I'm sure you've heard already. I don't need to go through them all over again and, and probably put you through that experience. I want to talk more about how it makes me feel and what the appropriate response is and how, as a black man, I see now, maybe than before what this country really is because I I came in with that immigrant perspective and I and I and I maintained it over years and and my transnationalism is strong and my connection to my homeland is strong but this time maybe because I have a son maybe because I have a black daughter but this one hit differently and it hit a lot of us differently it hit the nation differently because everyone got time we have time. There's, there's nothing else going on in America. There's nothing else going on all over the world. Social media has the attention of everyone. So to see this cop kill this man with such audacity was by far one of the boldest things that history might have to document. It was a, on like daylight lynching like it was back in the 20s. No one could save them. Not even the cops there. And yes, you might know that by the time I'm recording this, those other three cops finally have been arrested and charged. But to that, I still say middle finger to all that. This country saw people burn things down. This country felt black rage. Black, not just outrage, but just pure sheer rage. Something that a lot of y'all white people, or a lot of other white people were shocked to see. You heard in the beginning of this podcast, you heard Tamika Mallory in one of the more powerful speeches that you'll hear this year mention some, some important things that you need to take with you. We learned this from you. We learned violence from you. And what we have to take into consideration is that what is happening here was an attempt initially by the government, by the police precinct and everything to try to cover this up. As soon as George Floyd died, the first thing that they tried to do was try to come up with an excuse as to what he did wrong. He tried to fraud, uh, come up with a fraud check or he tried to come up with fraud money. People have lived for worse. People have lived for worse. You start to see the next thing. We need uh, to do an autopsy. And in an autopsy, we find out that, wait a minute, he's a black man. So he had some type of preexisting condition. Therefore, that's what killed him. The hypertension, the cardiovascular ailment. That's what hurt him. Not the fact that somebody put 500 pounds on his neck. No, no, no. That didn't kill him. It was all that fried chicken. All that grease in the system that heart disease, you know how that is for black people. You know you know the numbers. You know black men die a lot earlier than white people. So of course, this is just another one of those things, you know, people are obese. So, yeah, that's what killed them. No. Bull. And I know that there's a, the crazy thing about this nation is that you start to realize that there is a story among many black men. Some may be listening to this show, some may be just living their lives of something where they had a false occurrence, a very impactful occurrence with law enforcement or the police. I'll share my story. So when I was a junior in college, I was home for Christmas break. And, you know, at the time, my girlfriend at the time and I, she lived. I mean, I lived in the south side of Chicago, and she lived in the south suburbs. And she had a car, and I didn't because I lived with strict African parents, and I wasn't driving yet because my brother just got his green card. I was living life. I felt free, but not free as you know. You know what I mean? But we were in the process of. She came to visit. Had to sneak out to the parking lot or to, to the parking area. Sat down. We talked. Did our thing. You know, hung out. And then I came home, but I left my cell phone. I left my cell phone in her car. So I had to get it back. I had to get it back. So what I ended up doing was I ended up using my house phone. I called her phone. I told her, look, I need you to bring it back. So now I step out. I sneak out through the front door. My parents were doing something else. I sneak out and I'm walking down onto 79th Street. And as I'm walking, I have on this very popular bomber hat that I that anyone who knows me Knows that I wear this hat I've had this hat As long as As long as I knew winter As an adult And As I'm wearing this hat I'm walking down the street And Some cops I see some cops roll by They're heading forward And all of a sudden I see them reverse This isn't a typical car This is a squad car And Four police officers come out Approach me As I'm on the corner I'm on I'm on 80th in Indiana And They come up to me Tell me to put my hand on the car. Start asking me all types of questions. And I'm sitting there like, no, I'm literally just going to go meet my girlfriend. She's coming to give me my phone. I'm like, well, you look like somebody suspicious, somebody familiar who has on the same hat. Where are you going? What are you doing? Where do you live? Um, I literally live four houses down. I'm really just trying to get my cell phone. My girlfriend is coming. She's coming right now. Oh, where is she? She's on her way. Right. So I'm getting harassed. Getting asked these types of questions, what am I doing? Where do I go? They're looking at my, they're searching me, they're checking my phone, right? Trying to find any type of reason to occupy my attention. God willing, God willing, my girlfriend drives past and sees some cops harassing me, and I'm pointing like, there she is, right there, like for my life, like there she is, right there, right. Unfortunately, I was able to, they flag her down, and she was able to reverse. Her mom is a police officer. She had the little FOP sticker on the back, Fraternal Order of Police. And she was able to, you know, talk to them and confirm that, yes, she's my girlfriend. Lord knows if she ain't claiming, oh, Lord. But she was able to confirm that and they were able to let me go. And mind you, again, remember, my parents didn't know that I snuck out, right? Imagine if things didn't work out so well. There's a slight possibility that I probably would not have made it home that night. I probably would have went to jail that night. If not for somebody out there looking out for me up there. All right. And, I, and that's just a very, very, that story right there is very light compared to what other people have experienced that I've seen. I was immediately compared to somebody that I wasn't because I was black. I was immediately profiled to be somebody who wasn't. Lord, I was wearing a hat, yo, a bomber hat that everybody else has. Like I wear this anywhere. And I was told that I looked like a suspect. And you know what I, you know what I did? I immediately blamed myself. And this is something that happens a lot, typically, with black immigrants. A lot of us, sometimes as black immigrants, tend to blame ourselves. See, here are the two important things, distinguishing factors when it comes to how we respond. As black immigrants compared to African-Americans. See, African-Americans tend to be, because of their lengthy experience with racism and just brutal or brute oppression that's open and even institutionalized. They understand that and they respond because they have a post-traumatic syndrome that comes upon it. But African-immigrants come to this country with a different lens. They look at the situation completely differently. And a lot of times we've been conditioned to be able to have this exerted form of accountability. So I find myself blaming myself. Like, why did I go out? Isn't all your fault? Like, instead of you to just stay home, mind your business, who told you to go and have a girlfriend? Who told you to go have a girlfriend and start sneaking out in? This is what God has shown you. You see a life? Like, that's essentially what I told myself. Like, well, this is your fault? Like, if you just, shot, if you just kept to yourself... You wouldn't have found yourself at a situation where you almost went to jail, my guy. And it didn't, you know, and that, that's the, this, the, what you tell yourself in order to cope. Like, you take accountability. And the research shows that a lot of African immigrants tend to have that mindset, self-blame. We did it. We come from countries where we are told, in order for you, you have to, why? You have to behave. If you behave, you don't get in trouble. If you don't get in trouble, then life is good. That's how we keep to ourselves. That's how we keep our head down. That's what we tell our kids. That's what my mom told me. That's what my dad told me. Keep to yourself. Don't hang around with these people. Don't mind with African Americans. Do your thing. Read your book and you'll be fine. And to some degree, that's true. But then as I grow older and I become more wiser, become more exposed, more knowledgeable, and you start to really think about the the ability to be able to live as human beings, why is it that other non-black people can live so freely, you see white people, you see people who are non-black, can live life so freely, can take so many risks, can have the opportunity to make mistakes, to take, to to do the craziest of things, we joke about it all the time, how white people, you know, white people, would be wilding out, they do white shit, this is white people shit, because you think about it from just a general fundamental human rights type of thing. They have the freedom. That white privilege allows them the freedom to live freely. I do not have to sit and worry about conditioning myself as far as do right, mind your business, keep to yourself. Why is it that black people, we have to do that? Right, And this is what starts to recur in my mind. You start to find yourself being more exposed and more enlightened to the fact that this is the conditioning that black people, not just in America, but even in colonized countries, this is what we had to suffer. This is the product of that white supremacy, that white dominance that we didn't understand.
0: Can I tell my story Go as ahead. far as running in with the cops? Yeah. Um, I was in undergrad, in college. Me and my twin sister had uh, come home. We were in Harvey, which is um you know out south from Chicago, and we were in my aunt's house. They were smoking in the house. We both have asthma, so we were like, well, we can't sit in there because they're smoking. Let's go sit out in the car. The car was parked in the um, grass, like right by the house. Mm-hmm. So we were sitting in the car just listening to music. Out of nowhere, we look up. There's a squad car with the lights shine brightly on us so we can't see anything um all we hear is on the phone or on the the microphone mic- megaphone get out the car get out the car we get out the car and we can see that the cop has their guns on us two of them have their guns on us yes guns on us and the lights are bright we can't see anything we both get out and what are you doing listening to music let me just go get my mom let me let me just go get my mom. Like we were two innocent girls just sitting here, had no clue what to do. They hear us say that. I guess they realized that we weren't doing anything. So they put their guns away, turn off the light, and speed off. Then we go in the house and we tell my mom, my aunt, what happened. And that was the end of it. There's nothing we can do about it. Hey, we shouldn't have been sitting in the car.
2: Wow. Thanks for sharing that, babe. So, I mean, again, when we talk about what's really happening in America to black people, you know, there's so many things that I know a lot, lots of y'all who are listening can share. Or for those of y'all who are not black and don't have these experiences, some of y'all may have heard some similar stories before. And if this is your first time listening to this type of experience, then this is the shit that happens, y'all. And excuse my French. This is the real stuff that's happening to black people. And again, for me, as a black immigrant, this happened to me. Right. And again, i'm I'm gonna address that the black immigrant real soon, but I want to still stick to this issue of racism and how we're addressing it right now. One, the rage is necessary. I want you all to understand that it's okay to be angry, okay? And you know, I, I was listening to a forum earlier today at my institution, and I'm hearing my students, my black students you know really express themselves they express their their frustration their anger and 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 just annoyance and 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 fear and all these emotions that have come to the come to the foreground and as a faculty member I'm yearning to speak but I understand this is their platform and in my mind and I'm just saying look man you know fuck all that shit and not fuck the emotions but we constantly as black people find ourselves in a situation where we are always gathering to talk amongst ourselves about how we feel and what we need to do or what we wish that white people could do in order for things to get better and it frustrates the mess out of me because this is no longer the time for us to continue to hold therapy sessions we continue to find ourselves in these these dystopian AA meetings type of feel where we, when something happens and another one of us die and we have to come together in these grieving groups and then we sit and we talk and we have our white quote allies come together to listen to us, but then they listen to us, but no one says anything. They tell us, Hey, we come to learn. We just come to listen and know how we can support. No, no, no. I am sick of that, yo. We cannot continue to sit and, and what are you sitting and learning that you haven't applied in all these years? What are you sitting and learning that you haven't applied to help your fellow man years ago? This ain't the first time a brother has died. We have list. We have a long charter of names people that have died for being black and only being black. So don't tell me that you're just sitting here trying to learn I need to know right now what you know. What do you know, white person? What do you know, privileged non-black person? What do you know right now? Because what you know right now is important for the conversation because you need to learn. You need to apply that. You need to make yourself vulnerable to let people know what you know. What have you been trained to know? We need to understand what you've been trained to know so that you can therefore be able to understand what you have been doing wrong or what you need to do. And it's very reassuring sometimes for black people to be able to know that white people sometimes have just been conditioned the wrong way. Stop bullshitting us. Stop letting us know that you care without action behind it. Stop posting black squares without showing me that you truly care. I need you to donate your money. I need you to call those governors, call those representatives and lawmakers. Use your white privilege for that action. We ain't really with that talking no more. We bought that action. Shout out to Lil Reese. I want to explain why this whole thing is very crucial, not just for the old generation, but for the young generation. It's a crucial, it's very crucial because let's think about this. Just we've talked about the systematic systemic racism and I wanted to just put into perspective how things work, right? So we understand that if a police just happens to feel threatened, someone's lives can be taken away. If a white person in general happens to feel threatened. A black person's life can change forever because something as simple as hyperbole, as an exaggerated story can alter the course of black lives all the way back to Emmett Till, all the way down to Amy Cooper. Think about it. If a white person decides to come up with something, say we talk about the Karens and the Beckys and all these trendy things that are happening, if a white person tends to say something happens to say something about a black person doing something that is false. If they exaggerate, if they create some type of hyperbole or some false narrative about a black person that makes them create this false sense of threat, they're automatically having the attention of the police. It automatically leads for them to be arrested. When you become arrested or you have something on file documented that you are arrested, that automatically puts a black mark on your citizen record. And when you're trying to get a job, what happens? You have to do a background check. No matter how small or how large it is, when there's a black mark on your record as a black person, you're screwed because the system was already built against you. You have to be twice as good just to be part of the system. You have to be twice as good to get half the credit. So now you have just someone who may even just be barbecuing and you know just having a good time a white person calls the police on them as sean king always says shout out to sean king you know calling the police is dangerous for black people for this reason when you call a police officer and that person is bothered harassed, it doesn't just affect them psychologically when they go home and, and they're traumatized that way, but it just affects the course of their lives. It alters it. You might have somebody that may have had a lot of potential, may have been going up in the world, and a cop comes in and a cop arrests them for, for this false sense of of, of um, threat that they've created for a white person. Then that person goes to jail, that person has to find bail money, that person then has to find bail money, that person then has to go to court, that has to process that whole thing. All those things still cost money. And if that person is black and comes from a low socioeconomic status or have a low socioeconomic background, that person is now behind the eight ball. You are putting them in a system. And once they're in a system that's meant to crush them, they are screwed. So when you call the cops for something that is hyperbole, for something that is not true, that's exaggerated, that creates a false sense of threat and discomfort for a white person... You are ruining lives. This is why the Amy Cooper thing was very, very serious. And all the other things that we've seen on social media with the trending Beckys and the Beckys that are calling the Karens and the Wendy's and all these names, these monikers that we're creating on behalf of white people and Logans and Pauls, whatever, that are that are being created to kind of mock what's happening, but also bring awareness to the fact that white people are lying on us. You can ruin a college student's life. You can ruin my life. We can be having a really, really good track. And if I get stopped by the the police for doing something that's not true, that alters everything. Because any other job that I want to get, any other opportunity, any other school that I want to go to is going to be limited. No matter what, because the seed is already planted. The seed has been planted that this black person has a mark on their record. For whatever the case may be, whether it's, it's dropped or everything. Now that person has to find, even if that record was cleaned, or it's always there. And that person still has to now explain to whoever, what happened, which is a very long story. And no one's really trying to hear the long story. So now it's just really... goes back into creating that vicious cycle that keeps black people down because once you don't have a job you can't get a good job then you have to go back to the streets you have to go to something that may be even lower than what you're qualified for and now you have to be working for minimum wage you're finding yourself in this vicious cycle of poverty your kids are affected because they can't go to good schools you can't move out of the neighborhood you can't improve the quality of life around you all because of something that somebody said that wasn't true because they were racist, because they didn't like you, because you were black, because they had some type of stereotype perception on who you are and what you do. And that ruins lives. White hyperbole ruins lives. The implicit bias is not in our favor. These companies are looking at us and they're not perceiving the best in us. They're not seeing the best in us. So and if you want to know an example of what an implicit bias is, go look on Instagram, Look, go look on social media and look at that white lady who was looting that was found by the news. And the response immediately by the news reporter was, oh, she has to be an employee. I- I'm hoping that she's an employee. Right. That's the benefit of the doubt that black people don't have. So when there's something that's a print or a black stain on their record, we do not have the implicit bias in our favor. What happens is they're going to think the worst of us they are going to say, oh, that person must be a criminal. He must have done something wrong or she must have done something wrong or they must have done something wrong. So the implicit bias is not our favor. This is why it's dangerous. We have to stop that. That is why it's important. That is why I worry for my college kids. That's why I'm angry. Yes, it's, uh, it's about the deaths, it's about the killings as well, but this also goes beyond that. It's also something, even as minimal as that, that can really, really Im- impact people, and we need to recognize that. We know the shootings are there, but also these little things that, don't, that are not talked about because we're so focused on the big things, which is important, but those little things also matter in black lives as well. We need to be able to make sure that we do not have people affected by the system because Those seeds are being planted by white people, by white supremacists, by white haters. We need to let people know that we're tired. I don't just want to see you in my space no more, fam. I need to know what you're here for. I saw a post earlier this morning that said, we invite white people to the cookout. This is the cookout. What are you bringing to the cookout? What are you bringing to contribute to make sure we understand that you really have our backs? Not just the black square, not just the hashtag black lives matter, not just a whole bunch of posts, but, and, and, and shout out to the people who are on the front, who are protesting the white people there who are protesting on their behalf, who are using their white privileges for all those. And I respect that. And I need to see more of that because right now we are at a crossroad. People are dying. People are right now. They have the time. And a lot of this time they're utilizing to put their lives on the line During a pandemic, black people are gathering already dying at a high rate because of a COVID-19 virus that was already killing them at a higher number because the racial system that's in place as far as providing health has already put them at a health deficit. They're genetically displaced to already be behind the eight ball when it comes to their health. And now you have to add the fact that we are adding more physical harassment and abuse and police brutality that are wielded to the wrong people. To people who don't even know the law to the fullest extent we barely have lawyers who actually really know the law that graduate from law school and then you're asking somebody who goes in and goes for eight weeks to get trained and then all of a sudden you give them a gun you give them a taser you give them a baton and you already know they acknowledge the fact that they're white and then you give this person a badge and you tell them that they can go ahead police this community knowing all the while that they have been conditioned and proper and ill-trained to handle What's really going on in black communities? Hmm. How is that supposed to work? And another thing, you know, and, and this is more so for my for my black people, for my young blacks. We have to understand something. Youth is for war. And the age is for counsel. The elders are for counseling. And I remember that. When Trayvon Martin had died in 2012 or 2013, I think it was one of those, 2012, 13. It was 2012, but the, the ruling was 2013. That was a very, very tumultuous time, right? And, and that led to a lot of the Black Lives Matter movement that's kind of created this, this, this big monumental shift right now as far as this uprising. But in that moment, i never forget being in a meeting with a whole bunch of brothers, and I remember that statement coming out. Because we were at my generation, we found ourselves in the middle. We were not that young where we didn't know anything, but we were not that old where we were there in the sixties. So we found ourselves in the middle and we were like, yo, we just want direction. We just want to be pointed and we want to go knock them out, point them out, knock them out like Chicago would, right? We want to go out there and just knock some people out. And that's kind of where we're at now. The youth is angry. They want to go to war and let them go to war. We're no longer in the stage right now where we can sit and be like, yo, y'all need to calm down. No more diffusing the anger. Let some shit burn because you know what, yo, I have a son, I have a daughter and I can only imagine right now in this state where I'm at, where the COVID-19 pandemic has kept me at home and I'm, and my wife is working because she's on the front lines at the pediatrician and I'm out trying to take my kids somewhere, and a cop comes over to me because I look suspicious. I am a black man that has some nappy hair, um, curly hair, and I'm, you know, stocky built or chubby, whatever I am, and I don't look like I belong in a neighborhood that I belong, and I got a kid in the stroller, and I got a baby girl that's on, on a bike, and I'm sitting there, and I have to defend myself in front of my kids, or be harassed in front of my kids, or even lose my life in front of my kids, I'll be damned. To be another hashtag. And I'll be damned if any of my kids be another hashtag. Or my wife be another hashtag. Because of the fact that a black man. Feels like a threat to a white police officer. Who has this false sense of power. This inflated sense of power. That's been given to them. By other dominating white people. By white people who believe in supremacy. We can't. We have to fight back. We have to burn shit down. We have to tear some things up. This world has to burn. There's nothing new under the sun. This world has to burn for things to actually move in the right direction. So over the weeks, I asked myself and I asked my wife a question. Now that we know everything that we know, history of racism and all, oppression, we know about all these things. If this world was to burn down right now, and we had to start over again. We had to start this world over again. Who do you think would be the race that prevails? I'm gonna let you all think on that. Knowing what we know now, knowing how, who's gone through the most, who has the most resistance, persistence, and all that, everybody has their history. But knowing what we know now, if this world had to start over and we burned everything to the ground, who would? thrive. I know the answer. I want to know what your answer is. Hit me up on the the, the DMs, email me, tell me what you think. But that's how I feel. We also have to understand that we got to stop romanticizing the 60s, y'all. We got to stop romanticizing the civil rights movement we have to stop romanticizing all those times and eras that make white people feel comfortable. And I, and I don't necessarily want to make this just a black versus white thing, but this is what happened. This is what is it's become. This is what these types of issues have led us to believe because when we're trying to speak up and protest, you start to see all these other things, these messages that come out that really infuriate me. I saw posts, people were having a Trayvon challenge, Trayvoning, can you believe that? People were posting pictures of them laying on the ground with a hoodie on Skittles on the ground, mocking Trayvon's death. People are trying to test the fact that George George Floyd's death was real or not by taking pictures of somebody with a knee on their neck, challenging the fact that he definitely or she couldn't have died with a knee on their neck with that much pressure. That's impossible. He was on cocaine and his heart must have been racing too fast. This is outrageous and this is why I get angry because the majority of those people who are putting those posts are not black people. There is not one black post. This is the post of white people. And this is why it feels like a black and white thing. This is why I'm mad at that. This is why I've made this conversation become that black and white. So all in all, we have to stop romanticizing the 50s and the 60s because the fact of the matter is Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, like all those those leaders in the civil rights movement, they died And they applied those concepts that they believed in at that time. And they died for us to be able to further those notions. We can't let their death be in vain by trying to take ourselves back to the time that they lived, that they were hoping to change. They lived in a time that they hoped would change. They put all those quotes out there and all those things hoping for the change to happen. We need to take those concepts and apply it. But apply it to our world now. There's no way that we can sit and start to apply this peace prevail type of thing. When we've seen that over and over again, we've done everything that they've wanted us to do. We've complied. We've tried to find ways to to justify our behavior to the cops and everything. And we still find ourselves dying. No more. No more. We can't have it no more. At this point, throw hands. At this point, throw bricks. Until you are ready to listen. If they loot, let them loot. If you want to shoot, shoot back. At this point, that's where we've come. We cannot continue to take these moments and romanticize it because people of those times, white people, the majority of those of those times, have digested it, they've 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 processed it, they've moved on, they've advanced past it. So it's okay for them to take in a couple of Martin Luther King quotes. It's okay for them to white explain what Martin Luther King did to his own son. Literally try to explain to Martin Luther King's son what his father would have done. Because they are okay with those times. They're trying to control the narrative, right? People already talk about how this is how you protest. This is how you shouldn't protest. Trevor Noah said it best. The have and have haves not. The haves will tell the haves not what to do and what makes them feel comfortable. And it's the same thing in regards to how we romanticize the 60s and the 50s and the civil rights movement, right? Because now it's okay. It's been part, it's written in the history books. And we know who really writes the history books. It's written in the history books. Now they are telling us that's okay. So do it that way because that's the way that's okay with us. F all that. We need to make them uncomfortable. Shout out to Pot Smoke. We need to shake the room. Shake the room. We need to do things that don't make them feel comfortable so if that means burning some things burn some things but be smart about what you burn things that are happening right now where black people are looting on themselves just sounds backwards and lord i pray for those people because you all are being very small you're being very small if you're looting on your own people. Like stop going to these other places where that are being built by your black community because you have to be responsible for building it up. If not, you're just adding back to the system that's in place. You're not you're not debilitating it, you're helping it because now you've made poor black businesses already poor. And they're the ones that are there for you. So please, y'all, for those of y'all who are not thinking please let's not go that far. But when it comes down to what we are doing as far as acting in 2020, I strongly recommend that we be more aggressive. We be more assertive. These men are being charged. So what? It doesn't happen until there's a conviction. We can't let up. You have to understand that the connection between these two things, these pandemics that are killing us in this one world that we live in, is the social injustices, the, the, the innate baked-in inequities that were created to help one group, but oppress others. You have to understand that black people never had a chance. We've never had a chance. And, and again, I want you all to remember that I'm using the collective we because it's important to take into consideration. My fellow black immigrants from the diaspora, from Nigeria, from wherever you're from, do not think that you are exempt from what's going on. I mean, back in the day, it was easy for you to say, hey, look, I have a country that I can go home to. If anything happens, you know, that's no, we can't do that no more. Because reality shows that. They don't ask no more questions anymore. I mean, you have to understand that under this new administration. Ain't no more questions being asked. And then nobody care who you are, what you do. Like if you black and if you have the semblance of an American accent or you, you know, You may understand English. It's a wrap for you. We have to understand that as transnationals, we have the best of both worlds. We come here with the ability to have the best of both worlds. That also means that whatever we have in this world, in the United States, in the first world, we are responsible and accountable to it. We can't pretend That our brothers and sisters who may not be African or Jamaican or Haitian don't need our help. That they're not entitled to the same rights to be transnational as we are. That they're not entitled to the same rights to freedom that we feel we have. That we act like we don't come from the same type of experiences with colonialism. We come from countries that are colonized and because of how colonized we are, we're still suffering from the same effects. We're still suffering from the effects of what white people have done to us. I want you all to understand that. We are still struggling. A lot of these countries have yet to be able, name one African country that's truly become a first world country, quote, quote, first world, a developed nation. We are still suffering from the, the remnants of colonialism. It wasn't that much. I mean, it wasn't that far away. A lot of countries were just made independent in the 50s and the 60s. Around the same time when the civil rights movement was happening, when Pan-Africanism became a thing. So let's not pretend that a lot of our freedom, that a lot of the things that we have that happened in our nations was not a product of what happened in the United States, was not a product of the of the blacks and, and, and whites and people who came together to fight for global rights, for civil human rights. And because of this civil rights movement, African nations... We're damn sure to be able to have that opportunity to be free. When was Nigeria becoming an independent nation? 1963. Ghana. Like, you have all these countries who are so close to each other. Let's not play these games. All right? So don't all of a sudden say I have a country I have to go back to because the truth of the matter is that in all aspects, and I, I remember saying this type of quote to a good friend of mine, is that. No matter how liberated you think you are, the slave has not gone too far from the master. As black people, we still have countries that still look for the approval of white people. In the United States, we still have a system that has now conditioned us to still seek the approval of white people. In order for us to be deemed appropriate, in order for us to be deemed intelligence, in order for us to be a, a deemed successful, we have to consider or compare ourselves to whiteness. We have to have that white master still say, mm-hmm, yep, you're good. You're my equal in order to feel acknowledged, in order to feel heard, respected, valued, right? And don't get me wrong. There are some things that have been in place that, that, those, that institute violence that, that, that lead to violence against us. But again, the fact that we spent a whole century or so Looking for approval Speaks volumes To my point Related to The romanticizing of the 60s And and this whole idea of You know um, Applying things to the future The reason I'm really passionate about that statement Is because I want us to understand that Despite everything that's going on I had a conversation with a good brother not too long ago But despite everything that's going on None of this still compares to slavery 400 years of captivity let's put that in perspective 400 years is a very long time for us if you think about when slavery ended technically 1865 1865 air quotes at 100 1965 add 50 more years or so right so like that's where we are now so we're not even over uh, we're not even close to 200 years removed we're still just 150 years removed and if you subtract that from 400 you still have a little bit over 200 or some years to go to just make up for how many years that were taken from black people who were made slaves here who were brought here as involuntary immigrants and forced migrants forced to build this country from the ground up. Let's not forget that. They have not made up for what happened to African-Americans. There's still so many years to go. And the fact that African-Americans are still just looking to be equal and not looking to burn this country down is one thing. So to my African brothers and sisters who are sitting here watching, it's important for you to go learn your history. Because go learn the history. These are your people's too. Don't sit here and benefit from what the country has to give you and then all of a sudden don't speak for the people that look like you. Africans are dying. Don't don't tweak. Africans are dying as well. If you go back, I'm going to do Diallo from Guinea. He was killed by cops in New York City. There was another young Nigerian boy who was killed in Los Angeles by the cops in LA. I mean, or in California for sure, who was killed We are far from exempt from the racial profiling that's happening to us. And you have to also understand that because we are becoming more acculturated, we're becoming more Americanized. We're becoming more ingrained in the fabric of this country. Although we still have these strong ties to our native homeland, we are now beginning to contribute all throughout the season. All throughout this season, you have seen me talk to different guests, to different people about what's happening in this country about what Africans are doing now to contribute to this country. They're in the media, they're in sports, right? They're in fashion, they're in music, right? We are now becoming visible as black immigrants that we are now blending into the fabric of this nation. We are now part of that melting pot. We're no longer just a decoration or some type of sprinkle on it. We are now interwoven slowly into the black fabric of this nation. So we cannot find ourselves exempt to what's happening. This is our fight too. So we have to utilize our experiences. We need to humble ourselves and look into the history of what's happening and what happened to black people in America. We need to then continue to encourage them to unite with their brothers and sisters back in Africa. There still needs to be moments of reconciliation We still need to reconcile and be able to become one again. We need to be able to protest on each other's behalf. We need to do what white people are doing for themselves. When one white person, no matter where that white person is from, when that white person is in in, in trouble, that white person says, "Eh, I don't know what that, I don't, I don't know. I don't have no idea. I didn't see anything. We have seen countless times what this country looks like when Non blacks, when white people decide that they want to come together for an important cause, hint, hint, election of 2016. Right? So, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear anybody. If you want to go back home to Africa and go back home, go back home. But understand that you're doing the same thing, you're perpetuating the same type of issues that already exist in black communities. Africa is not free enough. We still are suffering from a lot of, of the brainwashing that happened. We're still suffering from a lot of corruption that was taught to us by white people. We're still def- dealing with the manipulations that have happened in our country that allowed us to be able to be so divisive among one another. Even though we're all black, we start to divide ourselves against when it comes to our ethnicity, when it comes to our language. They have taught us to be able to separate from one another. And then we bring that same attitude to the America And then we separate ourselves from our African-American brothers and sisters who are only looking to unite, who were left alone, who were sent out like Joseph to Egypt. And they built this country all the way to be something. They built a culture that there's only 13% of people. There's only 13% of people in the United States that identify as black or African-American, particularly African-American. And do you understand that African-American designed and developed what is 100% of what is dictated as cool all across the world? When we think about who our global stars and celebrities are, our athletes, Black people have been the movers and shakers of pop culture today. They have been essentially being used as the world's greatest gadget. We as Black people have been designated to be the world's greatest disposable gadget we have designed everything that the world embraces but we have been disposed once we've given them what we needed to give them and we need to stop that we need to start being more accountable we need to start taking ownership we need to start coming together and we need to start utilizing the fact that we have countries out there who can learn who are looking to embrace and unify we need to start becoming more synergized That's the only way I've always said that. And I continue to say that. And in order for this change to happen, we have to become more together. It sounds hella corny. It sounds hella cliche, but it's true because you have to understand that black transnationals, black immigrants and African-Americans, we have different experiences. We have different resources, but we share the same enemy. We share the same struggle when it comes to being attacked for the color of our skin, when it comes to being utilized and manipulated for the color of our skin, when it comes to being put at a deficit because of the color of our skin, we cannot gloss over that. If we do, we are doing a disservice to all those people that had died fighting for otherwise. We can't just take their quotes. We can't just wear these shirts that say dream like Martin, Read like lead like Harriet, fight like Malcolm. Think like Garvey. If you're not going to apply what they said in 2020, take what you're experiencing now in 2020. Don't try to treat it like the 60s. What's happening in 2020 and how can we utilize that for the betterment and the advancement of our people? We need to become a black institution. What can we do The first thing we need to do is start learning how to work behind the scenes, and that's what we're starting to see now. People are petitioning. People are being more aggressive and assertive when it comes to holding government leaders accountable. We need to start impacting policy. Everyone has a role. Youth is for war, elders for council, so it's important for the young ones to go out there, be in the streets, make noise, burn stuff down, let them feel it. It's important for the OGs, the old ones, and for those in the middle like myself to start playing those roles. Be on both sides. For someone in their 30s, be out in the streets, but also know how to play the politics. Know how to create attrition. Slowly eat at them. For the OGs, you have to continue to work that behind the scenes. Continue to counsel us. Continue to talk to us. Tell us how to properly do it right. Let us learn from the mistakes that you all made back in the 60s and the 50s. Let us learn from the things that you could have wished you could have done if you knew what you knew then now. Right. So, let's take all those things and let's be better. Let's work towards becoming an institution. Without that, this is just a waste of time. This would be a complete waste of time. This would just be another redundant practice. And we have to understand that this has been a crazy year already with the COVID-19 experiences I mentioned we need more culturally responsive interventions. We need the medical system, the CDC, the hospitals, the health researchers to be able to start creating things that take into consideration what black people are experiencing. How can we be able to promote healthier ways to live life? How do we create messaging that that, that can appeal to black people in neighborhoods that allow them to be more trusting, that allow them to be more educated, without necessarily denigrating and making them feel like you're talking down to them, making them feel subhuman. We need to be able to create culturally competent initiatives that allow people to embrace their own health in a way that they feel comfortable doing. And you have to understand, again, that these two pandemics are one and the same because they're born from the same mother. The reason they're killing black people is because they're born from the same mother. This is social injustices, inequities, as I mentioned. We have to keep to that. In order to change, in order for black people to lead healthier lives from a biological standpoint, there needs to be better systems in place to help promote better health for black people. We need to debilitate that health system. But also on the other side of the coin, in order for things to improve for black people now, in order to reduce the police brutality, in order to reduce the racism, I don't know if that'll ever be reduced, but in order to fight back, we need to educate others, but we also need to punch them in the mouth. Punch them people right back in the mouth. Let them know you about that life. We we cannot, we can no longer just sit and talk. Punch them right back in the mouth. You have to understand that in order for things, there's some lives that will be lost. People are dying. As martyrs, there are too many martyrs. Too many martyrs. And enough is enough. So I encourage you all, I implore you all to not take any more bullshit. Do it for Malcolm. Do it for Martin. Do it for Garvey. Do it for everybody who died looking wishing for the world that we're into today, but also wishing that we can be able to achieve that equality that we've been yearning for. No, don't just stick to what makes people feel comfortable. Don't just stick to what makes people feel okay. You have to show them more than you can tell them. So that's it, you know. Without being too more too long winded, without just getting over passionate, I, I I just want to thank you all for listening and just dealing with me. If you made it this far, God bless you. I hope that you were able to take something out of this, some wisdom out of this. Um, at least you were able to take, feel my passion. But it's been an amazing season, y'all. And I just want to take. This opportunity to just express how grateful I am for just you all, the listeners, and and it's been just an amazing season. We've had so many guests, so many guests. I mean, when I when I started this, you know, the first season, man, was dope. I mean, we had some we we had some good talks. We had some good people come up there. But the second season, I mean, it was just just I, I, you start to feel me hit my stride and I'm starting to become more comfortable with this and I'm and I'm becoming a better host I'm becoming a better interviewer I'm becoming a better communicator uh, I'm learning more about the producing I'm learning more about the editing and a lot of things are just coming together and I'm very grateful that you all continue to give me the feedback the the encouragement to to do these things And, and and I wanted to give a special shout out to my wife Wanda who had to step out as I was talking to attend to our child as he was crying. Y'all didn't hear that because of good editing. But, I mean, babe, I I know you'll listen to this, and I just love you so much. I, I appreciate you allowing me to channel my passion into this, to be able to take what I dream and talk about in my heart and soul even with myself and with other people and be able to use this platform to be able to do that just thank you so much for for being a backbone for being that stronger woman for being the voice of reason and just knowing that you know having that faith in me i wouldn't have been here this far if it wasn't for your love and encouragement wouldn't have got here so fast and so well if not for you so uh, just looking forward to our brighter future uh, with you and, and with everything that we do. And, and just thank you for being a mother of our, ch- our children, you know. So uh, this has been great to have you in my life. Thank you so much. I um, also want to give a shout out to my listeners, man. My, my my number one listeners, you know, my brother, Toby, who's always giving me feedback. Special shout out to my homegirl, Ashley Simpson, um, who's always been listening since day one. Um, you know, my other homegirl, uh, Dr. Tiffany Shout out to you, too, for always being a keen listener. And all my other friends, man, my besties out there, April, Candice, you know. Um, shout out to y'all, my brothers from other mothers, all y'all just being there, being real with me. Shout out to my boy, Chudy, for being my marketing promoter, my advertiser. Love you, man. Appreciate it. You've definitely put us on the map. and uh, And just everyone else that has kind of just helped contribute, you know, Alejandra. Shout out for you and Nala Velez, just all the great people that have helped with the website, with the logo, just from everything you've helped build this, man, and and uh, and I just cannot thank you all enough. I also want to give a thanks to our guest. I mean, this season would not be the season if not for y'all, and you all continue to just build on what our previous guests, who are amazing as well, are doing and and just making this show very interesting and engaging and fun and, and just so and just and just versatile, you know, and starting from George Loco and, and going to Jessica and Marinazor, you know, shout out to her. She actually passed her bar, and we celebrating you, sis. Proud of you. Congratulations, Esquire in the building. Also want to give a shout out to um Leslie Guam, who just finished business school, who was a guest on the show. Shout out to UCLA. Um also want to give a shout out to Ugo. And Chidi from Discover Giddy For coming through on the show Shout out to Dr. Victoria McNeil Yes, when she was on the show the first time It was, you know, Dr. DeV But she officially passed her dissertation She is doctor now Dr. Victoria McNeil, shout out to you sis Very proud of you Shout out to Dr. Ifenywa Yeniku. Shout out to B. Abudu His book is out now, Forbidden Scriptures Shout out to Miss Nia Muhammad From Good Global United Diaspora Keep doing what you're doing We want to be partners with you Uh, Man, shout out to Brother Hassan for coming through, speaking his truth, man. I follow him and I really love what he does. Shout out to Stephanie Yoko. Congratulations to her getting her master's in international affairs and and just being an amazing um, advocate and steward of the environment. Uh, Man, shout out to all the guests. If I didn't name you, forgive me, but I think I covered most of y'all. Anu Oluwakbo, my girl Anu. My little homie, my mentee, Anu, I couldn't forget you. Thank you so much for coming on the show, speaking your truth, and, and just and just speaking your passion and having one of the best episodes that we've had on this season. I mean, it was so many good conversations and all you contributed to it, from the Pillow Talks to the Let's Gist. I mean, we had an amazing time. We had an amazing 20 plus episodes this season and I think more to come. And I'd be remiss if I didn't give a shout out to my boy, Michael Bronte, for coming on the show and dropping major knowledge. And I hope to have him again future director future star future everything dj mike b i love you bro so i want to give you that shout out as well before i forget shout out to maria Ajao from dual citizen for just taking off immediately after the show was over she just blew up dual citizen is an amazing brand just pro black pro pro africa check them out they're about to be the next best big thing love you sis thank you so much you know i'm here to support i'm here to be a partner you know i got you um Man, I'm just thinking at the top of my head. I'm not even, I don't got no notes or nothing. So if you, if you, if, if no, I think I covered everything and I definitely covered, go to um, and, and all these other folks that came through on the show to just do their thing. This season was amazing because of you. Okay. And you continue to inspire others from afar and near. And I'm just glad that you use your, you use my platform to be able to share your, your knowledge and your insights and your experiences and stories. So thank you so much for your time. All right, and and to sum up, I just wanna say, I just wanna leave with this message before I sign off to understand that I know that this has been a tumultuous start to the year. We are at the halfway mark of the 2020 year, of the beginning of the 2020 decades. And initially we began really talking about how excited we were about it being the transnational 20s. And I believe that we need to still have hope in that. Because you have to understand that despite this moment of unrest, despite all the things that have happened with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmad Arbery and many of the other dudes, Sean Reed in Indiana, right, all these people that have died, we have to make sure that it is in vain. And if we can come out of this COVID-free, if we can come out of this year with a little bit more positivity, if we can come out with a positive outcome that can show a sliver of hope that we're moving towards gaining that equality if what we're doing right now being out on these streets and making them feel uncomfortable by shaking the room and letting them know that we're not going to have this anymore if we can come out with some type of positive outcome that allows us the fortune of being more closer to being recognized as a human being we are then we might just be off to one of the greatest decades that human history has ever seen. And I stand by that. So we need to continue to not let go of the gas. We need to continue to keep pushing on. We have to, and from a transnational standpoint, I must speak to my brothers and sisters there, black immigrants. We have to understand that we gotta encourage our brothers and sisters here to be able to connect back to Africa. We have to let the world know that as black people, we are entitled and we have the right To be global citizens. We have the right. To be able to live freely. And explore the world. And be part of the world. And be loved by the world. And embraced by the world. Because we are its children. We are from the motherland. We are from where the earth was created. From where life was created. We need to embrace that. As the aboriginal people. We must embrace the fact. That we cannot be scared. To go outside of these borders. That contain us. We cannot be afraid to explore the globe, to explore the world that was, that, was, that was seeded from where we're from. This world is just as ours as it is anyone's. So we need to understand that and we need to embrace that. So we need to keep fighting for it. We can't just go back to our silos or our countries and just wait for everything to come to us. We need to support those that are fighting now so that they can fight for us later. So I hope you all take that If you all take anything from this podcast I hope that you all take that Alright so Until next time We'll be shutting it down for season 2 Thank you so much for sticking with me For this finale I hope that you all go back and binge watch I keep saying binge watch I hope you all binge listen To all the episodes that have come out in the past And really watch my growth Thank you for growing with me Knowing that I'm still a work in progress And still supporting me nonetheless I'll be signing off for season two i'll be gone but not gone for too long we'll be back for season three hopefully in the fall bearing everything that's happening but stay tuned for that but until then my name is dr Kalechi bay lamberts my black is transnational and now that we're at the end of the season i hope that yours will be too peace